You're listening to Directions and Dialogue, a podcast where playwrights speak passionately about their craft. I'm David McKibben, and this week we're sitting down with Tara Moses. Hailing from the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, Tara has been making waves as a playwright and director, with her works being staged at Native Voices of the Autry, Arena Stage, and the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. Some of her plays include Sections, AO, Arbica, and Patchwork. Tara is the Producing Artistic Director of Teletulsa, Co-Artistic Director in Resonance at Red Eagle Soaring, and a Co-Founder of Groundwater Arts. She also is an MFA candidate in directing at Brown University, where her works have been integrated into the school's theater curriculum. In this episode, Tara will speak with us about the importance of creative sovereignty as an Indigenous theater artist, along with her take on decolonizing the playwriting process. So let's take our seats before the curtain rises. Today I'm sitting down with Tara Moses, a citizen of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma. Tara has worked as a playwright and director. Some of her plays include Sections, AO, Quantum, Arbica, Patchwork, and her adaptations of Hamlet and Don Juan. As a director, she has worked with the American Indian Community House, Arena Stage, Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program, and Teletulsa. Her works have been taught in theater curriculums at institutions such as Brown University. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you, David? Excellent, Tara. Excellent. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. We're going to start relatively simple. Who are you? Where were you born? And what got you into theater in the first place? So right now, I'm on the Muscogee Creek Reservation. These lands are the traditional lands of the Osage and Cotto, or what is colonially known as Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was born in the Indian Hospital in Claremore, Oklahoma. Anyway, but I'm from the Seminole Nation, which is central Oklahoma. As a young child, my family moved to the big city of Tulsa, which is where I am now. I've been here now, I guess, for a couple years. So who am I, right? Well, that was the question. All right, what a big question. A multi-hyphenate, that's a new word nowadays that I really like. Been a multi-hyphenate since I was a child. So, I mean, you already said a playwright, director. I'm an artistic director. I'm a dramaturg. I'm many things. I'm also a beadwork artist. I'm just a native woman out here doing the theater. But how did you start your journey into theater in the first place? I know a lot of people have gone into theater with the intention of becoming actors. My introduction to the theater is similar to a lot of folks. So my family moved from Seminole Nation into Tulsa. And while in Seminole Nation, I was used to being surrounded by a bunch of natives. And then whenever we came to Tulsa, my family was the only natives in our neighborhood, in our school. And it was a very isolating experience to go from being fully immersed within community to completely out of it. Anyway, and even though we would return to Seminole Nation, like in the summers and for ceremonies and for like specific holidays and et cetera, et cetera, I was still taken out of it in the day to day. And so I was eight years old, walking home from school, and every day I would pass the Tulsa Spotlight Theater. And one day I was walking by and they were holding auditions for Oliver the Musical. And this particular day, my older sister got a ride with a friend, so I was walking by myself. I remember looking at that sign and thinking, hey, I'm a child. I can look sad. 
I could be an orphan, but also thinking, hey, if I had somewhere to go after school, then somebody would have to come pick me up. So I confidently walked into the spotlight theater and unbeknownst to me, it was very odd to be an unaccompanied eight-year-old, but I was there and sure enough, I auditioned and I got cast in the ensemble of orphans. But what I found in this process that was just supposed to be an opportunity for me to not have to walk so far home by myself at the end of the day is, is that I felt a sense of community that I was missing. Now, granted, it was still very different from my community back home, but like still a community, which is what I was desperately needing. And I just like never left. And since then, I've now done Oliver the Musical four times. So <laughs> we're done with Oliver. Anyway, yeah, but I mean, it began as just some sort of place to be part of something with other people that I was just missing. So I began as an actor like many of us do, did TV and film for a hot minute, then I hated it and came back to the theater. And then I went into undergrad at the University of Tulsa with a musical theater performance degree. But while I was there, being there, you know, first Native student, one of three students of color, was just never cast. And whenever I asked my professors about, oh, what about like any Native American, like any Native plays? They didn't know any. I asked my other Native artists and they're like, well, you're the only one we know. And I was like, well, I was like, that cannot be true. That absolutely cannot be true. And then my junior year, I was in the basement of our campus library and I saw a bright yellow book that had the word yellow robe on the spine. And I was like, not to be a little too stereotypical, but that sounds kind of native to me. So <laughs> I walked over there, pulled out the book, and it was an anthology of William S. Yellow Robe Jr.'s plays from the 1970s. And he's Anishinaabe. And I was like, wow, not only does Native Theater exist, it has existed for literally decades upon decades. But at that point in time, because I wasn't getting cast, and I actually had a professor tell me that I was difficult to cast because I looked like a Puerto Rican. He said that in front of the entire faculty too, and no one said a word. And I I was like, interesting, interesting. This is the problem of predominantly white institutions and all white faculties, but I digress. Anyway, um, I transitioned into stage management and design. And so I took all the design classes. And then I very quickly transitioned into directing because I learned that like, if I actually want to steward the rehearsal rooms that I wanted to be in, a director has that authority to do so. And that same professor who made that Puerto Rican comment, uh, he has since retired. Good for everyone else. He also was the head of the playwriting program. And to take his playwriting class, you had to get his permission. And so I asked, put it in my request to take his class because I was just taking all the things. And he told me he thought I didn't have anything to add to the American canon as his excuse for saying no. Yeah, it's all right. Who has more awards and, you know, national theaters on their resume now? Me. <laughs> and he's well into his 60s. So it's all right. It all worked out. But yeah, and so I was just a director for a long time. Very happy to just be a director. And then I was at Arena Stage. And then now this is 2017. Again, very happy to be a director. Very happy to support other playwrights. And then I wrote my first play on accident, <laughs> as, it, as it goes, because uh, it was the first Women's March. And I didn't want to go because I knew it was going to be plagued by white feminism. And spoiler, it was. But I had friends tell me, we live in D.C. This moment is happening. Like, we have to be there. And I was like, well, we're getting pancakes first. We're going late. And sure enough, there was just so much like white feminism and white liberalism that I just wasn't having. So by the time I got home that 
evening because I was also bartending at Shakespeare Theater Company at night. So I got home at two in the morning, I go on Facebook, and there's a bunch of women who I went to college with from my high school, all of whom were white, saying that this march wasn't for them. They're not oppressed, blah, blah, blah. But I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open up Microsoft Word and I'm going to write my response so that it's all grammarly correct. It looks very nice. Well, sure enough, the next day I finished it. Uh, the third day, edited it. And then a month later, it had a public reading in Tulsa. And then five, six months after that, it had its world premiere production at Boston Playwrights Theater. And that was Sections. And that final monologue is still the very same Facebook post I was going to post. So I mean, that's the long about story of how we got here. But very much, I like to say the short version is through community and spite. That's amazing. Just to see how varied your path has gone from musical theater to tech to directing and now playwriting. It just goes to show that you can, especially in your particular background, use the power of theater to change so much in our community and in our society. Oh, yeah. Oh, do I have a reputation for that? <laughs> so you felt like you were more confident as a playwright, despite working consistently as a director. You've worked with various projects such as the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program and the American Indian Community House as a director and as a playwright. Where do you think those two lines are blurred and where do you think those two lines are divorced? It's very funny. Whenever people read my plays, <laughs> we're in like development processes. They're like, you write plays like a director because I am like vehemently anti-blackout. Like that is a hill I will die on. And so as a playwright, I write in the transitions from scene to scene because they're moments of continued storytelling. Now, granted, that tends to be something like a director may think of, et cetera, et cetera, but I'm very much in that realm. I also am team the least amount of stage directions as humanly possible, <laughs> which again is another like director quirk, so to say. And I have directed my own work, mainly because on my plays, I have an inclusion writer and in my contracts, it gets written into there that the plays that I write that are specifically around Native people, culture, communities, et cetera, has to be directed by a Native person. Because so often, so many of these plays, especially since Native theater is getting kind of popular right now and theaters are doing their very first ever Native American play ever, not a single one of those major productions, OSF, Arena, Playwrights Horizons, so on and so forth, have been directed by a Native person. They've all been directed by white people. Not even a Native person as an assistant. Very few of them had even a Native designer. And if they did, it was the costume designer. And we ain't here for that. We ain't here for that. And so with that inclusion writer, oftentimes theaters need more time to find a director. They move back to the production, the reading, which is fine with me. Or there have been some other times folks have asked, since I am also a director, if I would also direct it. Anyway, but yeah, and so, I mean, I think they're very blurred. <laughs> I would say. However, because I have directed my own work now for the past few years, I have a very particular mythology that, depending on how long the rehearsal process is, but if it's a six-week rehearsal process as an example, after the second week, we lock in the script and there's no more changes. And then I'm solely a director. There is no more toggling the director playwright hat. But I will say the moments when they are completely divorced are when I'm just a playwright in the room. And I often try to just be the playwright in the room and let whomever the director is do their job and me stay out the way. And I try to be really clear whenever we have those relationships. Unfortunately, all the directors I've worked with have been amazing of like, I'm not going to be here to backseat direct. I have no interest in that whatsoever. I just want to be a playwright. And my own artistic style is very much about uplifting other folks' creative sovereignty. So I'm really interested to see like what other directors imagine my plays to be. Most recently as in residence at the University of Arkansas,
Arkansas and their MFA scene design program was working on AO. And they brought me in as both the playwright and the director. And, you know, what was interesting is like, I have a very particular idea of how that play would look like design wise. However, I was like, y'all are here to design this. I want to know what your creativity is. I'm not going to give you too, too much other than like, this is a story with the China and Arapaho people. So we got to be specific. But other than that, I was really curious of what people would do. And what I find is that it's so amazing that people's like creativities go wild. Some person came in with a super abstract design. And I think of it as a highly realistic play, but I was just so excited and energized by it. And I was like, how can I write a little bit more of these abstract moments into the play? So I was just like so moved by what I saw. Anyway, so I try to keep them intentionally separated when I'm just a playwright in the room. But from the moment I write it, it's very blurred because I'm also thinking very much like a director and like, okay, we have a costume change here. They have five lines of dialogue. I'm going to add about a page. (laughs) Anyway, so designers also really love me for that. So it's very technical, I would say. It's where the director side comes into my plays. That's wonderful. You taught a class with Momentum Stage called Decolonizing the Playwriting Process. As a storyteller and as an Indigenous person, what does this process entail for you? So the theater that we know it in the United States, and this is the theater that's the quote unquote mainstream, which I hate that phrase, theater that we are taught in universities and training programs, so on and so forth, is a colonized art form. It's a very specific style of storytelling that comes from Europe, not saying that that's bad or this, that, and the other, but it's treated as the only one. So that's why whenever we think of like, who are the theater greats, right? We immediately go to Shakespeare. We go to Arthur Miller. We go to Thornton Wilder, Tennessee Williams, dead white guys who come from that settler descent. And there's very little room for any other interpretation. And that is also how every single new play development process is based off of. It is about literally colonizing each and every playwright to get them to assimilate into this idea of what is good. And what is defined by what is good is the Europe Eurocentric way of telling stories, which again, is not the only way. And so when it comes to decolonizing the new play process, it's ripping up the foundation because the foundation of the theater in the United States is rooted in cellular colonialism, and you can't build upon anything with a rotten foundation. And so throughout this class, it was an eye-opening experience for the playwrights who attended because they had never heard of this notion of creative sovereignty. And what I mean by that is actually having the agency and autonomy over the ways that you tell theater, which may be very different than what is quote unquote good. What is a quote unquote good structure? Because again, those definitions are very narrowly defined in the Eurocentric way of telling stories, which again, is not the only way. It was really getting down to what is the way that each and every one of us tell our stories the best. And so for me, I really structured this class around how our ancestors told stories. And again, not specifically to my specific indigenous ones, but to every playwright within that particular class of who were their ancestors? How do they tell stories? How does your family tell stories sitting around the dinner table? Because telling stories is just such an integral part to who we are as humans. And then it's like, now how can we take that same way of how we tell stories and create theater from it? Because spoiler, it is theater. It's not storytelling. It's not like folk art, which is how they try to categorize 
process, but it's truly, truly theater. And it's a deeply liberating experience because we're not so worried about like, if I want the Eugene O'Neill to pick my play, I got to structure it this way. Or if I want to be considered for the Ashland New Play Festival or this, that, and the other. I have to structure my plays in this very, very specific way. So it's about very much breaking part of that and writing authentically and creatively without those colonizing systems of what is theater and what is not. It's very interesting that you point that out because I think about this idea of assimilation and I actually took a course in African-American theater at the University of Florida. And my professor, Dr. Michael Pinckney, talked a lot about the assimilation period for African-Americans during the 1930s to the 50s and how it brought along plays like A Raisin in the Sun. Meanwhile, you're starting to see what is essentially a revolution going in with works from Ondasaka Shange and Amir Garaka. Do you feel like there is, to a degree, a revolution in Native theater? Absolutely. I mean, but also I would argue is, is that Native theater hasn't gotten the visibility yet to need a revolution. We're still in the genesis of it. Not to say that we do not have substantial foundational playwrights, again, like Bill Yellowrow, Thomas Highway, Muriel Miguel, so on and so forth, who have built a foundation from where we are. But because we have been so erased, the very first time a Native play was produced on a Lord Theater was in 2017. That was not long ago. Anyway, so we haven't had a need for a revolution yet. But what I think is really exciting, though, is, is that we have learned from all of these revolutions and renaissances, and especially in the history of Black theater, Asian theater, Latino theater, so on and so forth. We are using all of this great knowledge to clearly define what we want our present to be and what we want the future to be. In one way, I'm really thankful for that because it's given me the opportunity, again, to have these inclusion writers, to be very clear that I'm not a show pony for the theater to bring in their donors into my rehearsal room to see a native in action. Also very clear that I'm not going to assimilate into what they think is a quote-unquote good play, as well as that I'm not going to edit my play to center whiteness or to cater to whiteness or to their white audiences to understand or to translate the themes and the actual like conversation and story for non-native audiences. I'm able to like set those rules and boundaries ahead of time, assert my creative sovereignty now and have it still be recognized. So I'm deeply, deeply grateful for all of the work within all of these other communities of color, as well as like the foundational native playwrights to get to the position where I am now, where all the other native playwrights are now, where we can advocate for ourselves. Yes, I want to say it's a revolution. We're still in the building of it, but we're trying to build what we want now versus compromise now and then have to have a revolution later. Given the state of theater during the COVID-19 pandemic, how do you think the pandemic has impacted your creative process as a writer and as a director? I've never been busier, <laughs> which is wild to say. But what I will say is that I've worked with so many Native people. Pre-pandemic, I worked predominantly with Native people. And if they weren't Native, they were of color. But during the pandemic, I worked almost exclusively with Native people because we don't have the same institutional barriers that we did pre-pandemic. Because a lot of times these predominantly white institutions, the reason why they don't have Native directors directing Native plays, they don't have all Native design teams and so on and so forth, is because the American theater knows that they're rooted in settler colonialism. 
And they also know that if they put too many native storytellers in the room together, that some that a major disruption is going to happen. And so there's a lot of fear. And it's, you know, really wild because I've experienced this so many times talking to white artistic directors as a director saying, oh, I want to hire this person, this person, this person, and they're all native. And they're like, oh, well, we can't do that. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, you know, I mean, are they qualified to design at this level? And I was like, interesting. This one has an MFA from Yale School of Drama. I'm sure you know. This one went to Parsons and Yale. This one's a Drama Desk Award nominee. What you talking about? It's because of that fear that if they put all of us together, then they're going to have to completely disrupt the way that they create because they can't colonize us if there's a lot of us. It's a wild phenomenon. I mean, it's the same reason why theaters are so scared of all Black productions and creative teens as well, because settler colonialism has depended on the enslavement, displacement, and genocide of Black folk, as well as the genocide and displacement of Indigenous people to these specific lands. Anyway, in the time of the pandemic, I have a fancy Zoom account. There's a bunch of us that have a fancy Zoom account. We're able to practice so much of our own creative sovereignty because we don't have the institution getting in our way, as well as with the elimination of travel as an additional barrier, we're able to work across Turtle Island literally in the blink of an eye so much easier, and it costs significantly less money. And really the only barrier that we have is internet access, which fortunately I am the producing artistic director of Tila Tulsa, and we specifically serve Native and Latino people and their stories. I've been able to mail out hotspots to people who need it. Now we can all be together. I haven't had to go jump through all of these hoops with the predominantly white institutions. I haven't had to wait to be told yes to a project. I could just tell myself yes and make it happen. Furthermore, I want to shout out First People's Fund. They gave me a sizable grant where I could hire all of these Native artists from across the country to come together to create theater. And so again, don't need the institution whenever I have someone like First People's Fund who support what I'm trying to do and then not have to go through all of the colonial bullshit. So it's been great. And so now it's been a matter of time of like, well, how can we maintain this level of sovereignty and agency post-pandemic is really the big question, especially because these predominantly white institutions aren't going anywhere. And we have not quite met our goal of creating our own native Lord theater. We're working on it. So to say that Zoom has increased accessibility to indigenous artists is an absolute understatement. Absolutely. Oh my God, especially whenever we go back to, not go back, oh, please not. Whenever we get to post this pandemic theater, you know, because constantly I've been told, oh, we just don't know any natives. Oh, we can't produce this play because there's a cast of six natives. What about we produce this play of yours that has one native or two natives? They just don't know anybody. And I was like, if this pandemic has shown y'all anything, it is that we are literally everywhere. And also what I like to say is that in the United States, there are about the same number of native people as there are Jewish people. Do we have any problems? finding Jewish actors and theater artists? No, we do not. So what's y'all's issue with natives? There's no excuse. Going back into that, what's your stance on using Zoom as a medium in the rehearsal and performance process in terms of executing your shows? Obviously, it has increased accessibility and it has made your community grow stronger. But do you feel like some of the barriers of being on Zoom, being on a camera, can impact your ability to tell a story or perform in an honest way? I don't think so in an honest way. I think it's still deeply, deeply honest. It's just a different way. 
That's all it is. It's just simply a different way. But what I'll also offer what I'm really hoping for post-pandemic, whenever we all create in person again, is that like, I hope that Zoom is here to stay, not just Zoom productions and Zoom readings and recording of productions. Oh my God, can we continue to record of productions? I mean, look how well Hamilton did on Disney Plus and like how accessible it is. Like, I don't know about y'all. I live over here in Oklahoma. I can't afford to go jump up to New York willy-nilly, drop a couple hundred dollars and go see a play, but I can pay $7.99 a month for Disney Plus, right? But, you know, I think back to 2019, pre-pandemic, I was in California with Native Voices at the Autry during their 25th annual playwright retreat for my play Quantum. And there were a couple days that overlapped with the true story of Pocahontas in which I was supposed to be directing out in Georgia. And so the first two days of rehearsal, I was on Zoom. And the actors were in the room and it was perfectly fine and great and good. We were still able to do the tape work that we needed to do. I was still able to meet the actors and the company. Bless our stage manager. She was like carrying me around on the computer. Anyway, we were even able to begin to block the creation ballet that started the show. And then whenever I landed in Georgia a couple days later, we were able to pick up immediately and finish blocking the creation ballet. And it was beautiful. Um, And also before the pandemic, I've used Zoom. I've had designers Zoom into tech because they were caregivers and there was some sort of issue and they couldn't be in the theater. I've had, you know, again, designers have also Zoomed into tech because they were building another show somewhere else. And so they just couldn't be in two places at once, but they could be a Zoom anyway. And so I think there's just so many benefits to continuing to use this digital platform as we move forward, not just for accessibility purposes, also for individual artists. I don't know about you, but I know for myself, the reason why I was able to do so many things this past year is because I didn't have to build in travel time because you lose two whole days, like getting there and getting back. So I was able to direct multiple productions at the same time because, oh, we have a rehearsal in the morning for American Indian Community House in New York. Okay, great. Now we have rehearsal in the evening for out here in Tulsa. Oh, and then the weekend, we're going to be directing at Yale. And then during the middle of the day in the afternoon, we're going to be in residency in Dallas, Texas for a new play. And then all the next day, we're in residency in San Francisco for a new play. If this was not accessible online, I wouldn't be able to do all of those things. We would have to pick and choose. So there's so many benefits, so many different ways. And I'm really excited to continue to use it. I mean, because accessibility is not just economic accessibility, geographic accessibility, um, but also accessibility for folks with disabilities, for folks who are caregivers. I mean, as well as like folks like myself who like to stay and live within my homelands. But pre-pandemic, about six months out of the year, I was never home. So this is the longest time since I graduated college I've been in one place at one time because I'm usually on the road someplace. You know, I say that getting ready to move. So I'm very upset about that. There's just, uh, there's just so many benefits if people just like open their minds a little bit and embrace the medium for what it is. And it's not like a substitution for life here. Absolutely not. It's its own genre, I would argue. But there's so many numerous benefits could come from it. As a playwright, what exercises would you recommend for a beginning writer or for a writer dealing with writer's block? Are there any tools that you use to discipline yourself when creating your work? So I like to say I have no formalized training as a playwright. For my own self, I only write when I need to. And I feel as though as a writer, I'm very much a vessel for whatever spirit needs me to write in that moment. Like it's a very deeply cultural practice for me. And so I only write when I need to write. I only write when I feel like writing. If I don't feel like writing, we ain't writing. 
But for some folks, what I have said to a lot of like early career playwrights or other folks like dealing with writer's block is that there's so many strategies folks can adopt. Like there are some folks who believe in writing every day. There are some folks who believe in having a page quota a month or whatever it is. What I always like to say is what is the best way for you to create? For me, it's only when I feel like it. And it's usually in three day spurts. I write all my plays in about three days. That's kind of how it works. Anyway, there are other folks who like to think about plays for 10 years and then spend two weeks writing them. And so what I always like to say is, is that like if you're experiencing a writer's block, it's probably for a reason. So like go outside, watch a TV show, play with a cat, whatever it is, whatever you need to do. Because I firmly believe that we can only tell stories when our vessel as a storyteller is taken care of. So just do what you need to do and the words will come when they need to come. You told me that you just finished a cycle of plays during the pandemic and that you completed two of those plays. Would you be interested in discussing this cycle in greater detail? Oh, yes. I'm so excited. So I wrote Arbika and Arbika is getting ready to be at Native Voices of the Autry in June for their playwrights retreat. So I'm very excited about it. And well, whenever I wrote Arbika, it started out as a decolonial our town, but better and funnier. And then it sort of transitioned into its own thing. And so Arbika is so much of my own family stories set at our Arbika grounds, which is ceremonial land. It's about an hour outside of Tulsa, out in, you know, the rural place. Like, there's no address, just directions and dirt roads and such. It's a very, like, special, sacred place. Anyway, and so it was centered on one particular family and their niece, who was finally coming back home for the first time in over a decade after spending a lot of time living in LA as a screenwriter. And so it's very very much centered on community, family, tradition, stories, as well as dance. And so there's a lot of traditional dance throughout the play. And so I finished Arbika. Arbika was supported by First People's Fund. And after I finished it, I was just like, love that family so much. And so Native Voice of the Autry asked for a 10 minute play. And I was like, what if I do a 10 minute play called Patchwork? That's a year after Arbika with the same people. So I wrote that, but I was like, there's still more. I was just like, I just love these people so much. Now, granted, I mean, it's because it's all my family stories. And so whenever I was commissioned by Ultra Theater Ensemble in San Francisco, their commission process is very much about asking the playwright to choose a creative risk for themselves. And so everything that I write like starts out funny and then gets real not funny real fast. So my risk I wanted to take was writing like a true comedy. because so I've never done that. And I've just been a little scared. I was like, what if it's not funny? Whenever I got that, I started thinking about two of the characters in Arbika who are elders in Arbika. They're like in their mid, late 60s. Loretta and Pancake. His name's Richard Harjo, but his name's Pancake because his ass is so flat. That's the joke. And I was thinking, what would their love story look like? Their 1978 love story down in Wawoka, which is the capital Seminole Nation. And so that's what Snag became to be. So Snag is officially the second play in the cycle. It goes Arbika, which is set in modern day. Snag in 1978. And for those who are unfamiliar, snag means fuck. It's some Indian, you know. So good mean, the perky, you call them your snag. It's a fun thing. Anyway, it's a very fun, raunchy play that I just finished. And then the third play in the cycle, I'm currently under commission, Lauren Gunderson and the New Now Commission. And that's a very open commission to write whatever I'm feeling. And so I'm thinking that that's going to be my time to write the third play in this cycle, which I think is going to be set in 1950s with the very tragic story of one of the characters' grandfathers from Arbika. 
in his story back in the 50s. Uh, but yeah, and so that's the cycle I'm currently working on. I'm very excited about, and I'm currently speaking with Groundwater Arts. I'm a co-founder there, and we do creative practice things with real artists, as well as consultation and community building. I'm talking about Groundwater Arts now, but what can it look like if all three of these plays, you know, excluding Patchwork, the 10-minute one, were to happen at the same time? What would that be like? I think that's what I want to see. I think that's where I'm going next, is all three of those plays at the same time. Wonderful. Anyway, thank you so much, Tara. It was a pleasure to speak with you and hear your story. Be sure to check out Tara Moses's plays on the New Play Exchange. If you are not a member of the New Play Exchange already, it is relatively inexpensive to join. And thank you so much, David. It was so great to be here and chat. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day. You too. week for another episode of Directions and Dialogue. Be sure to like Directions and Dialogue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our episodes are available for your listening pleasure on SoundCloud, YouTube, and Spotify. Directions and Dialogue is produced and hosted by David McKibben. Music comes courtesy of Twin Musicom.